0: Listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people. I usually bitch about the weather, but right now in New Jersey, it's cold and it's rainy, and I'm happy with that. And I'm gonna tell you why. A week ago, I was in the hospital getting something called a cardiac ablation. That's basically so my heart will get back into normal sink, because I have an irregular heartbeat. So they do the, they get in the hospital, and you know, I have the IV in one arm and IV in the other arm. And then for the operation, in one part they have to monitor it, so they had to go through my wrist. Well, I guess my arteries on my right wrist are too small, so they I was put under, so I didn't feel this. But they poked and prodded and poked and prodded, poked and prodded, and nothing. So they went through my left wrist. And now it's a week later, and my arms are purple and yellow and just bruised. So I'm like, thank God I can wear a sweater today and it's cold and it's gonna be cold tomorrow. And I don't wanna look like, you know, a crazy person. Anyway. We have a great show today. We have a gentleman who's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for his uh, work with Joe and the Blackhearts. He's uh, very big on the recovery scene. In fact, he's the recovery troubadour. And my guest is Ricky Bird. How you doing, Ricky?
1: I'm doing great, man. It's, it's going to be hard to uh, follow a medical procedure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, the stories, I'm sure the stories you have, though. It was just funny. I mean, I mean you know, I it's something that was basic. It sounds so advanced and, and medicine has changed so much that everything sounds so advanced, but then it takes like a day and a half. And you're like, I mean, when I was younger, it's like if you went in for your tonsils to be checked, it would take like a week.
1: Yeah, that is true. We we are, we have come a long way and yet we've gone no place.
0: Exactly. (laughs) So, so you started, when did you start playing guitar?
1: Um, I'm going to say I was nine years old and, um, Typical of a lot of people my age, uh, I saw the Stones and the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and I, I kind of could relate to, uh, I mean, I was always loving music. Even as a little kid, I loved music. I loved baseball, you know, I loved TV. <laughs> and, um, I think, uh, I saw those guys and something clicked in my head. They kind of, I don't know. I, I felt different when I was, I kind of felt different when I was a kid. I was very shy and, and, um, I'm not going to say I was withdrawn or anything, but I was shy, quiet, you know, kind of kept to myself and uh, always, like, drawing on on my loose-leaf book in school pictures and uh, listening to music. I I obviously didn't know I could play until I uh, picked up the guitar for the first time and and I found that I could kind of figure out bits and pieces of songs that I heard on the radio. I mean, not well, but, I mean, at least I had some sort of um, I had some sort of ability to uh, hear something and then figure it out, and and literally when I saw those guys on TV, I mean I love the Beatles. I grew up on the Beatles, but when I saw the Stones, something something clicked in all parts of my brain. Um, they kind of looked like I felt, okay. which was a little a little out of place. Um, they, the the girls in the audience were screaming, which sounded like a plus for somebody that was shy, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> And finally, this guy at Sullivan, who was the host of the show, he looked—you know—he looked mortified when they came out. And I mean, he booked them because he knew he was going to get a lot of kids to watch. But he just looked—he had that judgmental look on his face. It was almost like when the Stones were on the, on the Dean Martin show. Uh, I think it was called Hollywood Palace. There's that famous clip of Dean introducing the Stones and then kind of rolling his eyes. And it was just like a generation, a generational kind of wall up. It's like, okay, we're next. Here we go. <laughs> and I, th- I think I, fa- I felt that when I was a kid. So and you, I started playing, and that was it.
0: So you started playing. I mean, what made you go out and get a guitar, though? I mean, it's something that, you know, Did your were your parents musically inclined? And they said, hey, we're going to get you a guitar. Were they supportive? Well, uh,
1: well that's, a, that's a funny question. My, my, I actually still have... When I was a kid, my parents were divorced, so we lived with my grandparents for a while. And my grandfather had a big family, and they all played stuff. My grandfather played the Hawaiian lap steel guitar, which I still have his guitar. It's like uh, 1928 Electar, which was a division of Gibson at one point. And uh, with all the books, with, you know, all the Hawaiian, uh, there was actually there was a, actually a Hawaiian guitarist named Alvino Ray that used to be on TV all the time. And he used to make the guitar talk, you know. Um, and I still have that book with the guitar and all the the original finger picks my grandfather had. So he used to sh- he used to play that while I was a little kid. So I, I don't know if that had something to do with what, why I wanted to do it, but that literally that night uh, I saw the, the Stones on, on the Ed Sullivan show. I said something to my mother about it, and she was working. Um, she was working. She was in the handbag industry at that point, and her boss gave her a guitar for me for my birthday, and she brought it home.
0: That's awesome. I mean, that's what, you know, and, that's... And just... actually,
1: that guitar is actually in the rock hall.
0: Oh, wow. That's so that's so incredible. So you, you start learning, and you're getting good. Now, when do you decide to go out and start joining a band, or starting a band? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard field to do, and, you know... No, there's not really, back then, it's not like you give YouTube or anything, there's no guide to saying, here's how you get into the music business like there is now. How did you start getting into bands and getting started in your career? Well, I mean, like everybody, well, not these days,
1: I, 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 don't, I don't know how they do it these days, but, you know, you join bands, you're in junior high school, you're in high school, uh, you, you kind of sort of hang out, you wind up hanging around with the other musicians in school, and you put together a garage band. that's where the term comes from Um, and you you throw together some songs and you wind up playing like church dances Um, I mean I'm still friends with my friend Phil who lives in Florida and we played Flushing High School because I I grew up in the Bronx and then we moved to Queens Um, and I went to Flushing High School and we played in 1973 we played the auditorium and that was probably you know that was my first gig where there were like hundreds of people there Um, and we were kind of like um I, I very early on I kind of took a liking for British rock and roll so we're talking about 1973 so we're talking about Zeppelin and The Who Humble Pie Rod Stewart in The Faces you know The Stones uh, obviously The Beatles and some ob- obscure things like Savoy Brown and really that our, our set that that gig at Flushing High School was filled with songs from those bands now the generation before me um did things like they would play church dances, they would play like Midnight Hour, uh, they would play Rascal songs, um, you know, Good Love and stuff like that. And then my generation started in the early 70s, uh, at least my band, I don't know if there was another neighborhood band that played British rock like that, but we just, we kind of just played these songs that probably nobody in the crowd knew what the hell they were, except for Stay With Me by The Faces or something. All
0: right. Uh, go ahead. So, no, so I was gonna say, so you're playing that, you're playing in the neighborhood bands. Now yeah,
1: playing neighborhood bands.
0: And when do you try to sit there and say, I can make a I can make a living out of this? This is gonna be my I job. You,
1: I don't think that's a conscious I don't think that's the conscious part of it. I think the conscious part of it where you see all of your friends kind of drop off little by little from playing in bands for one reason or another, um my brain just went, all right, this is what we're going to be doing for the rest of our life. So, so that's the conscious decision. As far as making a living at it, I don't even think we thought of that stuff. Um, but from, from those gigs, local neighborhood gigs at, at church dances and, and like Hebrew schools and little ev- little little kind of get-togethers that people threw in the house and the garage. Or I mean, there was that too. You'd be playing in the garage on a beautiful summer day. The garage door would be open and all the kids would kind of gather in front. And uh, then what happened is we started to this group of friends that I had. We started to hang out in Manhattan at some, you know, now famous rock and roll clubs. Uh, one of them being Max's Kansas City. So you know, if you don't know what it is, you Google it. It was it was a legendary club started by this guy Mickey Ruskin, who before my stuff, uh, before the rock and roll business started hanging out now, it was kind of like an artistic. Um, he was sort of like a guy that like all of the artists uh, like Andy Warhol and, and you know all these they'd go there for lunch right and if people didn't have money he would just kind of spot them lunch you know and, and they would give him a piece of art to hang on the wall so that was what the place was filled with um, and then sort of the early 70s it started to be a hangout for art but then also music so bands like um uh let's see uh well the new york dolls started there and, and other places like the mercer art center there were all there were about four or five of these cool cl- clubs in manhattan it was like a subculture um and and it was like very glam um uh, you know satin pants and velvet suits and scarves and rod stewart haircuts and and all different kinds of bands i was only i was 16 so you go in there with Phony Proof, and, and this band that I had that was in, uh, playing out in Queens, we I guess we wrote some original songs to go along with that stuff. And we started playing, you know, we play at Max's, we played the Mercer Art Center, um, and a couple of the other joints. And I would get little write-ups, which I still have. You know, 16-year-old guitar player, Ricky Bird, you know, is, uh, I think the band was called Rough Stuff at that time and that's really where that part of it started and little by little, it kind of grew. You go from one band to another, you know, you get get a little notoriety. Maybe you didn't, you'd start a different band. Um, and then that that led me into maybe my being 17 or 18 years old, maybe a little 19. Um, you know, you'd start to take it more serious, more seriously. And, um, Oh, it's not like you're making money from it. Uh, everybody had, like, these little side jobs, well, it were, whether it was, like, driving a cab or selling the New York Times over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> everybody had these jobs. I mean, you, you know, you now all of a sudden, you're, like, uh, a young adult, right? So um, uh, I still lived at home, um, but I remember having those little gigs. And then you would try to just keep booking gigs. Uh, then what happened is I met... Um, so I get into this other band, I'm trying to like make this the short version. Uh, so I'm about 18 years old and I joined this band uh, called New York Central. They had like a single out, you know, nothing, nothing really major, but they had a single out, uh, a couple of singers in the band. So I joined this band, so I'm the youngest one in the band. And we start playing up in the Catskills. Like, we would try to get, like, an original record deal. But the way we made money is on the weekends, we would go up and play in the mountains, in the the Catskills, up in New York. We would, like, the rock band in the hotel. You know, and we would play. So it was around that time we would play Hockey Talk Woman. And we probably played a little bit of, um, I don't know if it would be disco, but we played a little Earth, Wind, and Fire and this and that. So there was that, right? Um, and now, so now I have a little teeny bit of income from that. Um, when that thing ended, um, I met my girlfriend, now my wife, Carol, and I get, um, uh, so we had this, we had this paper in New York called the village voice. Yeah. All right. So that does not exist anymore. And that was the go-to paper. I'm sure there's one in every town or there was one where if you were looking for a band or you wanted to know who was playing, that's where you went to look. You know, and it was like, there was like, there was every gig that was going on, whether it was Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden to the, you know, tough darts playing at Max's Kansas City. And then in the back, there was classifieds. So, band looking for a guitar player or, you know, lead singer looking to put together a band. And that's where you kind of got your connections from. And one, I think one day, I think it came out on Wednesdays, if I remember, I saw that there was a band from Boston called Susan. They were looking for a guitar player. Um, and I think I got in touch with them. I mean, it, it was so long ago, it's all vague, but I know it came from the Village Voice. So they, came, they moved to New York, I joined this band, and we started, um, we started playing. Carol was friends with um, Tommy Mottola, uh, who wound up um, managing Mariah Carey and the, you know, the CEO of Sony Music. Um, she brought him down to a rehearsal. He signed us to a production deal We did a record for RCA, we toured the country, opening up for Grand Parker and the Rumor. Uh, The end of the tour was at the Academy of Music on 14th Street in uh, Manhattan, and after that gig we broke up, (laughs) which is what usually happens. Uh, Well, One of the guitar players left, we tried to keep it going, and then nothing really happened. So that was really the beginning of, that was my first album, and that was in 1978. Uh, you could still find it on eBay. That record, Susan. It was called uh, "What Was the Name of the Record?" Falling in Love Again. And um, we were kind of pop band. We were like the Raspberries, kind of that kind of thing. Three lead singers. So it was bound to fail, right? Three, three, three egos. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I, I want to sing this song. No, I want to <laughs> sing this song. I um, so he left. Tommy left, and Tommy had a couple of albums on his own. And then, so I'm like in the middle of figuring out what to do next. I was a bike messenger, man. You know, I had no money, um, and I was, so there was this little little piece of time where I was trying to figure out what to do next. Um, t- Susan, the band Susan was managed by Tommy. Tommy also managed Hall & Oates, try to follow me here. The guitar player for Hall & Oates was, was G.E. Smith, who was also the musical director for a long time on Saturday Night Live. Me and G.E. became friends, G.E. left Hall & Oates. He put a record out, and he asked me if I wanted to tour with him, and I said yes. So that was my second tour with G.E. Smith and his band, and we toured the country opening up for Squeeze on the um, um, Tempted tour. Okay. Uh, so that was it. that was my second tour. Then that ended, and now I'm trying to figure out what to do next. John, ready? It's, 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 we're getting there. Okay. <laughs> John, wait! John, wait! Just left the babies. He, he moved to New York. Somebody puts us together. They thought we'd be good together, which we were. We wrote some songs. Uh, at the same time, uh, Steve Marriott from Humble Pie, which is my fa- you know my favorite rock and roll blues rhythm and blues singer, uh, saw Humble Pie like fifteen times. We became friends. Uh, because he was managed by, uh, Lieber Krebs, which Carol, aforementioned girlfriend, now wife, she was the publicist up there. So she knew I loved Steve Marriott. He, Humble Pie was managed by Lieber Krebs. She introduced us. We became friends. So we used to hang out all the time. And he asked me if I wanted to join, get this, the, the, like the last version, one of the last versions of Humble Pie. Um, I don't know if the other guys in the band knew, but he asked. <laughs> Uh, so so, now I got John Wait, um, I'm hanging out with Steve Marriott, and then Carol calls me and says, um, there's this uh, girl, Joan Jett, um, and I know who she was from The Runaways, um, and the first Bad Reputation record, they didn't really have an office, so they used like the closet up at Libra Krebs, and they were selling the Bad Reputation album out of the back of their car or something. So long story short, I went down and I played with Joan. We jammed, and, it, and we got along great. I joined the band. We did the I Love Rock and Roll record. There you go. One, two, three, Bob's your uncle.
0: Now, the I Love Rock and Roll record, I mean, everyone, I'm I'm 50, uh, 55. Everyone knew that. Everyone knew that album. Everyone knew that song. What's it like for you, a guy who's, you know, as you're saying, you were... You were meeting a lot of people. You were doing well, but you know you were having a bike messenger job. What is it like when that album starts taking off? I mean, you have to feel the heat it's getting. And just with MTV blew everything up then, what's it do to you personally?
1: Well, it's interesting. I had a conversation with somebody um, about this the other night who was in Broadway in a big show, and we talked about the same thing. You're kind of in the middle of this whirlwind, right? So... We're on. We do the record. We go on tour. We're we're like in a Winnebago, and we're touring clubs. This is the Blackhearts, and the record comes out. It hits the charts. The I rock and roll is starting to get played, and it's starting to move up the charts, right? And and the the further it moves up the charts, the bigger the gigs get. Then all of a sudden, the things you do notice are there's more people at the gigs. People know the song. um, You know, people are asking for your autograph. you go from a Winnebago to a tour bus, you know, that's the stuff you notice, but you, you kind of, tour, you're in the middle of this tour, which is very, uh, I mean, for, for somebody in their twenties, it's tiresome. It's amazing. It's fun, but it's one gig after another. And, and tr- you know, you play for an hour and a half, two hours and the rest of it's traveling. And then of course I had my, um, you know, drinking and drugging, um, uh, issues at the same time. So that didn't make life any easier. um, so you're kind of in the middle of it, but you notice things going on around you. Uh, you come back to New York for a break of the. And, then, you know, another thing that's when you're in that heat, uh, they try to uh, embellish on it, not embellish, they try to, um, uh, to lengthen it. So what happens is you come back off of the tour and you immediately jump into it, go into the studio to start recording another record. You know, you don't want the, the, the momentum to die. So this went on for years, right? Tour record, tour record, tour record. It takes its toll, you know, um, and uh, it takes its toll on your health. It takes its, it, it the family, you know. It's it's just, but that's what you do, you know. This is what you wanted, right? So you're like you're having a great time. You're playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, flying here to do interviews, to do photo shoots, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, so you know that's the answer to that question. Is like. You notice it, you notice things, you're in magazines, you come back to, what I was starting to say, is you come back to New York to record, you know, you, you wanna go out, you go to clubs, people are, oh, come on in, Ricky, you know, come sit in the VIP booth and, you know, can I get you something? You know, you notice that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, Maybe you maybe you got a little bit more money, depending right. on how much you spend and how much you're given. Uh, but um, other than that, maybe you could afford a couple of more guitars. Uh, but in the end, you've, you're you becoming the person that you wanted to be when you were 13, right? So it was, it was a blast. And then I played with Joan from um, 81 to, I'm going to say, I think 91 is when I officially left. I came back in 92 to do this one VH1 special that we did in Telluride, Colorado, Um, and then that was that. I went right out of that band into a tour with and an album with Roger Daltrey. It was it was um, it wasn't actually a tour; it was a radio tour, and then we did a couple of gigs, special gigs. We played Carnegie Hall, you know, a couple of things, but mostly it was radio. We did a record, half of it here in New York, half of it in um, at, at Abbey Road Studios. So that's amazing. Um, and then I went from that to, um, a tour with Ian Hunter from Mata Hoopal. Um, we toured Scandinavia and, and England and that was amazing. So now you, you know, you're hearing me say I'm playing with people that I grew up listening to, right? Right. When I was a little kid with the giant headphones
0: yeah. in, your <laughs> parents,
1: you know, in your bedroom. Yes. Yeah. So, so all these things like, you know, it's overwhelming, right? It's like playing all the young dudes with Ian or behind blue eyes with Roger. It's like crazy. Um And then after that, there was a, a period of like, what do I do next? I kept trying to start a band, not much success. Um, by this time, I was sober. Um, I got clean, in, uh, clean and sober in 87. So, you know, I'm sober now, but I'm still like, who am I? What do I sound like? Like, what do I do? Um, and pretty much, you know, if I was going to be completely honest, I put together a couple of bands that were, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, Tag Job Stone sound kind of bad because that's how I knew how to write. Um, and, you know, then nothing really happened. And put together a demo, try to get a record deal. Um, so I was kind of like, oh, what the hell do I do next? Yeah. Um, and then there was a time, and then all of a sudden, I made a decision to go out and play acoustic, I remember because it was too expensive to put together a band. I wasn't sure what I was doing. So I started writing acoustic songs. I started to find a style. Um, and I went out and I started playing solo acoustic. And then I put together a little band and I had Simon Kirk from Bad Company on drums, me on acoustic. And uh, we had a ver- various people on bass, Kazim Sultan who played with me with Joan, uh, you know, he plays with Todd Rundgren. He played bass. I had Tom Peterson playing bass for a couple of gigs, mostly local gigs although I did uh, an acoustic tour of uh, Belgium, uh, which was really cool. I started to get a couple of songs cut by other artists that I wrote, so I'm now starting to find my style. Still don't have a clue how to put together a band um, and do this kind of music. You know, time is passing. Um, And then I start to get these phone calls, I guess, you know, because of my history and my age, uh, and maybe because I'm clean and sober and I show up and do good work. Um, I started to get phone calls to be in these like, all-star bands to do these events, and from that what happened was I started to get to play guitar for people that I grew up listening to, like you know Mavis Staples, uh, Smokey Robinson, uh, Brian Wilson, uh, Billy Squire, um, Sam Moore from Sam and Dave. I, I would do these events for different charities. Um, we did this thing at the rock hall every year for a couple of years. And so it was like, the band was like me, Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel's band, like Will Lee, Paul Schaefer, uh, and then Rob Arthur that plays with Peter Frampton. And that would keep switching around every year. But the bottom line is I got to play two or three songs with each of these artists that I grew up listening to. So I'm saying that I played tracks of my tears with Smokey Robinson. I played, um god only knows with brian wilson right i'm I'm having to record charts um uh, it's keeping me on my toes it's making me a better musician um i mean the list of people that i got to do songs with bruce springsteen um elvis costello little Steven. um i mean it just dion it just goes on and on because of these events so like i'm loving this man um I'm, i'm learning to be a better guitar player um i'm learning to uh play as part of a band um you know and do my parts and, and stand in the back and, and and be a a musician as opposed to a showman and and then uh one thing led to another and i wound up doing this record in 2013 called lifer that was my first real solo record i did like an acoustic live record before that with simon and chasm on it um which um, i still have a couple of copies somewhere so I do lifer that gets amazing reviews. Um, now I'm starting to know what I sound like and bottom line is I kind of sound like, uh, a, like, a, a, a combination of all the stuff I grew up on. So there's a little soul, there's a little blues, there's a little, uh, British rock. And that's who I am. That's the stuff that I, that's, that's the stuff I grew up on. That's the sponge. I was the sponge and, and that's the kind of music I enjoy playing. And at this age I just want to play stuff I enjoy and now we get into the recovery stuff
0: right yeah I was. Just, well i listened to uh clean getaway and uh you know it's it's a great album but there's a message that's the thing like you know we grew up with lyrics but you know you said the drinking and drugging was it that extreme in when you were out on the road before you were sober and did you start at a young age
1: well yeah i started when i was 13 like a lot of people um started smoking pot but you know, people people forget. It's not a, it's not really about getting high. It's about not feeling. It's about feeling uncomfortable in your own skin. And once you do that first drink or drug, and it kind of takes you out of yourself, if you have like an addictive personality, I mean, I have addiction in my I have alcoholism in my family. It kind of opens a can of worms, and then you just get in, you get used to not feeling. So maybe um, uh, you're on the road and you feel bad about not being home or whatever, you know whatever the whatever the reasons are you keep drinking and drugging to kind of mask feeling um so it started off slow and uh, i mean i do know when one you know certain friends would smoke one joint i'd smoke five so i think really early on i knew that i don't know if i didn't know but i definitely did more than a lot of people you know right. uh, a lot of my friends uh, and as you get older you start hanging out with different people i always hung around with older people i think a few years older than me you start doing pills, you start drinking, you start combining. Um, I was, I was fearless. Um, I, you know, if you didn't, if I, Hey, I got some pills. I'm not sure what they do. And that's fine. You know, I just knew they would take me someplace else. And I definitely think that I um, had the addictive qualities early on and it just progressed as addiction and alcoholism does. You know, it's progressive, chronic, and if not treated, um, it could lead to death, right? I had a couple of near misses along the way. Um, You know, somewhere around 83, uh, uh, my lung collapsed uh, from, I I lovingly call that my Richard Pryor period. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so I burnt a hole in my lung. You know, I was doing a lot of coke, um, and I was doing everything at once. The only thing I didn't get into, was I never shot heroin um, or speed or anything like that, never shot anything. Although, it's not like I'm afraid of needles, I do have some tattoos, but I I thought that was like a line. But then at the end, um, before I got clean, there was some snorting going on. Um, And uh, by the end, I mean, I was, uh, listen, I wasn't as bad as some people and I was way worse than a lot of other people. Um, I was 128 pounds, I did a lot of cocaine, um, I did a lot of Jack Daniels. I did a lot of pills. I smoked a lot of pot. Uh, so for me, it was pretty much, um, I, I do know one thing. I looked in the mirror that night, September 25th, 1987 and said, dude, you're going to die, bro. Um, and I, that should have been known in 83 when my lung collapsed. Right. But, but, you know, everybody's got a different bottom. right? So, uh, yeah, in answer to your question, um, what do I know now that I'm clean? Well, I think I was always a fairly good guitar player, but my guitar playing skills have, you know, gone to different levels than I ever thought I could play. Uh, my songwriting has gone to a different one. My singing has got to a different one. I'm a better person. You know, listen, I've made 101 errors in judgment and recovery. Um, the only thing I haven't done is picked up a drink or a drug, but as far as um, errors in judgment and and, and Probably doing the wrong thing. And yeah, they them mistakes. Now, was, so what are you going to
0: do? Was it hard for you? Because, you know, as I said, the 80s, you know, everyone was partying in the 80s. You're in a big band. Was it hard for you? Well, you say after the long, you kept partying, just you probably figured, because we all think, you know, if something bad happens to us, oh, yeah, it's just something small. We can deal with this because, as you said, we're young we're invincible. You know, we're, we have no fear. Was it hard for you? Well, you used to keep partying when you had your lung, and then, I mean, what you said you looked at the mirror and said you were, you were going to die when you went sober. But what made you get to that point? And what made you well, be aware?
1: That, well, it was just getting worse, you know, it was just getting worse. I would, I would just, um, my actions were getting worse. My, I, the difference between listen, we all, I'm not going to say we all party. People often ask me this. It's like, man, in the music business, you know, it must've been everybody getting high. I was like, no, not everybody, but those are the people I hung out with, you know? I mean, when you, there's nothing worse when you want to get high when with somebody that's sober going, nah, I don't think you should do that. But, um, uh, I think, um, the difference between, uh, People like me is uh, that, that might have this disease of addiction is that we don't know how to stop. You know, some people go, "Yeah, well, I got to get up early, so um, I'm going to take off now." Um, that wasn't me. It never was me. I mean, I re- I could I remember a hundred times uh, where the the band bus was going to be in the lobby. You know, was going to be ready for us to come down to go to the next town. You know, and I got like 20 minutes, you know, to pack my stuff. I've been up all night and I keep going If I could sleep for five minutes, I'll be just fine. You know, that kind of thing. Um, that's what comes along with this disease of addiction and alcoholism. It's like there's a part of your brain, the pleasure centers. Uh, and for people that have this disease, um, it comes with compulsion and obsession. And that's all I could say. So once you get started, it's really hard to flip that switch off Usually it happens when, you know, you run out, you pass out or something really bad happens or some, you know, we're losing a ton of people now. People die. uh, I don't know what the record, what what the uh, statistic is per day right now, but it's a lot. I think we lost like 80,000 people last year. Uh, And that's just from opioids. That doesn't even count. Um, Alcohol's like another almost close to 90,000 people. So this is like a serious thing. and, And, you know, not a lot of people are blessed enough to get out of it. Um, I just, uh, if you want to know, like the last, my last two months, I mean, like I said, I was 128 pounds. So picture that, right? Right. Right. And it's not like, you know, I'm exaggerating. You can just look at the videos and photos. Um, I remember in August of that year of 87, we went to a wedding and we sat next to a friend of ours that we used to kind of run with. Yeah. And I leaned in and I said my two favorite words at the time, which, you hold <laughs> mm. And she said, no. And she started talking about recovery and I'm doing this stuff. And I go to these meetings and I'm all, and, you know, you know, my brain was still active and I was just like, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started looking around the room for other people, other victims, you know, uh, but she kept talking, man. And, um, you know, to be completely honest, all I heard after that was like, wow, 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 wow. Right. Wah, wah. <laughs> like Charlie Brown, but um, that was the person I called like at one, two in the morning on September 25th. And, and you know, uh, if you wanna know, like leading up to it, when I was turning 30, I knew that like I had to stop. Uh, you know, my dad died of this. And I said, that's it, I'm done. And I still have my diary from 30 to 31. So I was born in October, I got clean in September. Um, my diary from that year, Dude, it was like, every day, it was like, today, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drug. And then the next day, it would be like, okay, I went out last night, I had a club soda, and then I bought a Jack Daniels, and then I used. Okay, today, I am not going to... And it went on every day like that for almost a whole year. So, it, that was when I first started to really try, was, you know, January of, of you know, 80... Um, what would it be? January of eighty seven. Right? Is that right? Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, and then by September, I, it was a losing battle. And that's when, you know, higher power kind of throws somebody in your life that shows you a different direction. And it's like planting seeds. Um, so at the moment, when she was telling me about this at the wedding, I was like, yeah, good, nice. But that was the person I picked up the phone and called.
0: Is and it- she took... Well, I was to say, when you picked up the phone, I mean, you looked in the mirror, but what what do you think made inside your head you to pick up the phone? And did you think that when you picked it up, it would last? Because that's, you know, you were partying hard, and that's a big adjustment, and you're a rock star, and you're on the road, and you're in, around people.
1: Yeah, so, the, I, to, I mean, uh, I mean, the action of picking up the phone was the gift of desperation, as we like to say. I just came to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. I was, I was done. Um, I had no clue about um, uh, recovery at all. You know, there were, it was 87, man. It was like the Betty Ford Clinic, and you, every now and then you heard about somebody getting clean. I mean, I know Aerosmith had just gotten clean or something. Uh, my a relative of mine, who's clean for decades, Used to send me pamphlets, um, you know, all kind of twelve-step pamphlets, and I was just like, "What the hell is this?" You know, but um, so seeds were thrown at me. I just didn't know how to pick them up or follow them. And um, once I made the decision that that night, uh, because of the gift of desperation, I was taken to my first community support group meeting. Um, raised my hand, and then I was like, "All right, I like this." Um, uh, and, and the statistics say that one-third of the people get it right off the bat. Then there's the middle that, you know, they understand psychologically uh, what recovery means, but they're not quite ready yet. And then there's a third that don't get it, and those are the casualties. Um, so I really enjoyed those uh, meetings, and um, I still do it now, you know. People ask me, how are you still clean uh, almost 32 years? And so where I said, I still do the same stuff I did at the beginning. That's it. It's a daily reprieve. Now you asked me an interesting question. So now I go back on the road and I'm, a, uh, and I'm, and I'm amongst people that, you know, are still partying, not everybody, but there's definitely the same stuff I left. Um, and I had to change my, um, I had to change my footing, you know, um, I remember at the beginning, I would go to people's rooms where they were still doing blow and, you know, I remember the guy I was, that was helping me at the time said, you think that's a good idea? And I'm like, yeah, maybe not, you know, I would sit in a chair and drink a, like a seltzer or something like that. Um, so I stopped doing that and I stopped hanging out at the bar after the gigs um, until I thought I could, you know, still do it and, 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 and deal with it. Um, so I, I just kept changing in fact I did a gig with Paul Schaefer and I said to him you know I, I can't tell you how important the Letterman show was to me when I first got clean and sober and he said what, what do you mean I said because I couldn't really hang out with people I went back to my room and there was, was like a, a, a loneliness thing that you're not part of the, the you're not part of the party anymore yeah um, and I would watch that show every night and kind of feel when I was homesick and I would kind of feel part of New York again Um, And then instead of staying up all night, I would actually come into a town and make a phone call to, you know, the local um, uh, community support group uh, hotline, kind of like Bill W. did in Akron, Ohio back then. And I'd say, uh, hey, is there something going on I could come to? You know, and some some stranger would come pick me up at the hotel. And I just kind of changed my daily planning, uh, which you kind of got to do whether you're on tour or not getting better and easier and then they would listen you know you're you're part of the party you might be the catalyst of some parties and all of a sudden like you're I I heard stories afterwards about people making fun of me and you know oh big shot he doesn't drink and drug anymore uh, you know hey that's not my issue that's theirs you know
0: right
1: so and, and so you kind of feel like a little bit like out of the loop um you know and um you just deal with it, man. And you got to figure out what's more important. And time just, time just went on. And and I just kept getting stronger at it and better at it. The thing about it is, the the, the three words that you can never say if you're, uh, uh, you know, in this position is, I got this. See, I don't got this. I'll never got. I'll never get this. It's a daily reprieve. And you know, I can tell my addictive behavior. <laughs> behavior goes far beyond drugs and alcohol. It's, it's like anything that gets me out of myself, instant gratification, um, you know, a little bit of danger, um, all the stuff that goes along with it. And it has nothing to do with drugs and alcohol. I could see myself even in recovery, sometimes acting out on certain things, you know, whether it's overspending or, you know, if if I just buy this, it'll make me happy. (laughs) You know, um, so I, I, the, the acceptance, the acceptance part of it, you know, you got to get down like real quick. Like I accept that I have this, um, and I can't do the first one, and and this is a thing. This is a lifelong process. Uh, I am. I feel like I'm recovered. Um, I'm recovered from active drug and alcohol usage. That's what I'm recovered from to, as of today, for today. Uh, but I, I have not recovered from the disease of addiction and alcoholism. That is part of my brain makeup uh, until some scientist comes out and comes up with different stuff. That's the way uh, I understand it. And um, So that's why I gotta keep doing the same stuff. Now I'm starting a different, um, I get to do all these great recovery events. Um, I get to, and and then actually tomorrow, I went to school last year, I got credentials to be a drug and alcohol counselor and uh, in training and a recovery coach. And tomorrow I got myself a little gig twice a week at a counseling center, so I'm going to go uh, do that and start working twice a week, and start helping other people on that level. Also, getting hours to, for my um, credentials, and and then I just did a big benefit—not uh, a benefit, a big a recovery event in New Jersey and in, um, in uh, Atlantic City this weekend, um, where I talk and play as a recovery troubadour, as a speaker and a, and a you know kind of motivational um, musician. Um, and I put out the Clean Getaway Record, which um when I do my recovery music groups at treatment facilities around the country, I give out copies of that. So I got that going on. And now I'm working on the follow up and I am doing a very important um I'm doing a follow up and for me to be able to afford the studio bill musicians, I'm asking people uh that love the last record or are fans of mine from whatever band I played with To pre-order the record, you will not be disappointed. Just go to rickybird.com. Very simple, Um, and that that money will go to me being able to finish this record. Once it's done, I put it out, and then I will continue to. Then I'll give copies of this record out to people that are struggling in treatment, and um, and that's that's the long and short of it, man.
0: Well, the clean getaway. I want to ask you about this. You know. What made you decide to sit there and write songs about recovery? And did you think about what audience it may get? Because me, I listen to music. You know, I just listen to it, and it's got a great sound. So for me, I don't, you know, it doesn't. if you're talking about getting sober, if it's a good song, it doesn't affect me because it's a good song. But when, exactly. you were, when you were putting that together, did you think, okay, you know, did you think that these songs might not hit some people and they might be like, oh, I don't want to listen to that because it's preachy? Or as a writer, you know, and you're comfortable in your work so you know you're good, what was it like when you were putting them on on paper? Were you sitting there saying, okay...
1: First of all, um, I think one thing you learn in recovery is what other people think of me is none of my business. So there's that... (laughs) And uh, the second thing is, I don't really care. I mean, I would love to have a song on the radio, um, and I learned a lot from the last record, and I don't think the one thing you cannot say about the Clean Getaway record is not preachy at all. Is it the rock and roll record. It's got a good message. Every song has a solution. Um, so even if it's talking about hardcore stuff, um, it, there's always a good message, recovery message, to it, in the end of it. Um, the, the other thing is, the, you know, the brief... Explanation of how this started is uh, around 2012. I, I did not have one song, one recovery song, and I was talking to my pal Richie, uh, Richie Super, and I, you know, and I was kind of feeling—I don't know—I was going through a period. I was feeling a little confused or low or whatever, which happens even in recovery, um, and it's usually a direct result of not doing the work. But that's all of the conversation. Um, and, and he said, "Come hang in at the house in Florida. Let's put let's put our songwriter brains together and just write a song about what you're feeling." We wrote Broken is a Place, which is the final song on the Clean Getaway record. I came back to New York, I recorded a quick version of it, I put it online, and I started to get this overwhelming response from people either struggling, um, either uh, know somebody in their family that's struggling, lost somebody in their family, people in recovery a long time, or people just love the song. And I went, wow, that's interesting. You know, people telling me, man, you told my story. And I was like, okay, I think I may be onto something here. So I wrote a second one. I wrote a third one. I had about maybe a half a dozen songs. I kind of called a treatment facility. I wangled my way in to do music groups, which I had no clue what the hell I was doing. But I I figured between my conversation and the six songs I had, that would fill up an hour. And the response from that was all overwhelming. So I kept writing more songs. And the other thing that that would happen is um, after each group, the clients would come over to me and they'd say, where do I get this music? How can I get this music? How can I take this music home after I leave here? After a bunch of those for almost, I don't know, eight months, I figured I had to do a record. So I did an online music campaign, raised the money, did the record. And that's how it happened. That's, that's literally how it, how it happened. I just wrote that one song broken as a place with Richie super. The response showed me that there was a reason to keep doing this. Um, there's 25 million people in this country in some sort of recovery, uh, so that it can t- can touch a lot of people. Is it hard to get music on the radio anyway, whether you put out a straight rock and roll record or not? Yeah, but um, I'm a uh, you know I'm a smart guy, so I covered "Kicks," the Paul Revere and the Raiders tune, because um, I knew that I could at least get a chance that Little Steven would play it on Underground Garage, which he did. It was the coolest song in the world. Uh, with that said, I, I have a really great cover song I'm doing for this record, um, which I don't want to say yet, but it's going to be a really cool song, big, giant Motown song uh, that really touches on... Um, the words can be uh, interpreted, it, interpreted as, you know, uh, not a recovery, but, but um, help is out there kind of thing. And, 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 and I also learned on this record, I am going to, or I have done, I got like 15, 15 songs, so obviously i got to narrow it down. Um, I, I wrote with a couple other people as well as the ones I wrote myself, like Willie Nile, this great singer-songwriter Emily Duff, a uh, song or two with Richie. Um, I'm trying to keep the message a little, except for a couple of real hardcore songs, I'm keeping the message a little bit more, uh, a little wider, so it could touch more people. Like if you know, like if you're struggling, you know exactly what it's about. Otherwise, it's just about changing your life for the better. Um, and, and that's what this record will be. And listen, the next record might be a blues album. I don't know. But for right now, I wanted to do these two records and um, and and try to, um, this is what I've become. I love it. Um, I love like this event I did in Atlantic City. I finished and people came over to me and was like, man, that, that fourth song you did, man, that was like really, that that was my whole life in and addiction and, and very touching and, uh, uplifting, and, and I'm like, yeah, this is cool. So, I mean, who could ask for anything more? I, I, I combine rock and roll and recovery, and it's touching people. So I could probably do more with this than writing songs about, you know, cars and right. whatever. <laughs> Love songs.
0: Now, now, do you think um, the people after these events find you more approachable because you are a rock star? You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is it something that they sit there and they, you think that they come up to you more because they know that everybody's you know fallible? You know, it's not just a person who's in their corner or on the streets doing drugs. You think it helps that you were so, you're high level that people come up and say, "I can feel comfortable telling this guy."
1: I think it's definitely my angle when I go into treatment facilities and do my recovery music groups that I come in with my guitar and my tattoos and my, and a little bit of rock and roll story. Um, You know, it's a different. It's a different aspect than somebody coming in, you know, in a suit, doing the, the whole, you know, if you do this, this is going to happen. You know, I come in with a different angle, and I think that has helped as far as being approachable. Dude, I've always been approachable, man. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a guy from the a kid from the Bronx. You know, as long as you don't talk to me when I'm eating or I'm pissing, I'm, I'm good.
0: <laughs> now, what was it like? <laughs> when, what was it like when you were inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Did you see it coming? I mean. It's, it's the top level. I mean, you know, it's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I'm a baseball fan. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
1: a, what was that I like? Mean, I, did, did, I thought I, we, were, we were nominated, I think, three times before this happened, or this was the third time. So, you know, people were telling me eventually it was going to happen. I mean, I didn't really give it much thought because, you know, you get nominated and you go, oh, cool, cool. And then it's like, ah, oh, shit, and, you know. But then when I got the phone call um, that it was happening, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, you know I know a lot of people bitch about the politics of it but um, I'm kind of happy it's in there um, and, I, and I thank Joan for you know bringing me on her ride um, it's, it's a trip to go in there and like I did a recovery event uh, there last summer and I'm doing another one uh, August 25th in Cleveland as part of their summer series now I'm their recovery guy right so, um, it's a big, gonna be out, outdoor, part, right in front of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's gonna be, this year I put together me, Kathy Valentine from the Go Go's, Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel's band, and, uh, Kenya Raven, uh, who's a, 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 legend and an icon in the music business. And also, uh, she's a DJ on Underground Garage. And, uh, we're gonna do some songs from my record, you know, uh, Kathy will do some, some songs that she has that are about, Changing your life, and same thing with the other two. Um, actually, Liberty doesn't really—he doesn't have any songs, so we're gonna let him do. Um, he, last year he did the No No song by Ringo. You know, you gotta let the drummers sing a song. <laughs> and um,
0: but uh, yeah. Wh- what the hell are we talking about? What was the last question? About the Rock Roll Hall of Fame.
1: Um, oh you- yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so I know. Last, last year, man, I went in there, and they said, "Hey, we want to show you something." And they brought me down to one of the exhibits and it was my, Isle of rock and roll black Les Paul in the same case with like Chuck Berry's shirt. And I was like freaked out, you know, it was like very emotional. I was like, wait, what, is this a mistake? You know, but it's, it's cool. Well, I did it. I've been doing this a long time and you know, it's, it's definitely a pleasure um, and it's an honor and, 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 you know, I, I'm c- completely grateful and, and, you know, I don't know what else to say about it. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm in there with with Joan, and I'm in there with like a lot of people I grew up listening to. And and then every time I go there, I like to take a walk through the museum by myself. And you see like John Lee Hooker's guitar, or, or 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 Howlin' Wolf's you know bag that he kept his dough in, that he kept with him on stage, or you know Muddy Waters this, or Sam Cooke's tuxedo, and you just go, wow, my guitar's in here. That's pretty cool
0: well what's cool is also is when you think about it you know those songs the big john jet songs you've played guitar that millions upon millions upon millions of people have heard i mean at the end of the day that must be the one of the most awesome feelings that you've touched so many people
1: yeah man it is but and it, you know i mean as a guy in recovery like i'm i'm getting um i'm a, i'm getting a big kick out of people coming over to me saying man i'm in recovery too that you know i grew up on your music that's so cool that you 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 know it's a big influence on me and it's great to hear that you you're doing this and you know i'm i'm getting older man things things are changing I, I mean i'm getting off on this right now i totally respect um uh the other stuff i love when people come over and say hey man i saw you play in wherever in 1984 or something like that um, it's all part of the tapestry of my whole goddamn life, you know. I mean, who knows where the hell it's going to lead? Now, tomorrow, I'm going to be a drug and alcohol
0: counselor. And that's that's awesome too. I mean, it's something different. And once again, it's it's you come in and you know everyone watches TV and they see the drug and counselor, and it's always like the the hippie guy. You know, when you watch like Breaking Bad or Sopranos or any of those shows. But now it's someone they come in and they're they're getting help from a, a rock star. I mean, that for anyone that that must be sitting there going, well, you know what. He was a rock star, and he's he's clean and sober, so I can do this.
1: Yeah, that rock star thing is a little um, uh, uncomfortable. I mean, I, I'm a musician. Um, I've had some moments where it's been rock star moments. You know, I don't know. I'm just a normal normal cat, you know? I play guitar, I sing, I write songs. Um, being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is, you know, a rock star moment, but... Uh, but uh, I just, I, I like being a musician. I like the fact that I could get up um, uh, with, like, six, seven, eight other guys with, you know, sheet music in front of me and, and, and like, back up Smokey Robinson.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Like, yeah. Is that a rock star? I don't know. But as a I'm, mu- a, I'm a musician.
0: As a musician, how many guitars do you have?
1: Nah, yeah, it, it varies. I mean, it's a way less than it used to be. You know, uh, I don't know, 12. Do we- do you have one? 13. do you have one favorite? Um they're all favorites. Like the the thing that's fascinating is you pick up uh you pick up a certain guitar and it has you write a different song than if you pick up another guitar. They all have like personalities. Um for example, I went to Nam last year, the music um, uh manufacturer's event. I went to Nashville and I, I picked up a, a mandolin. I came back to New York, I sat on the couch and in 10 minutes I wrote this song called Hear My Song that's going to be on the next record um, because I had a mandolin in my hands and it made me play a certain way and then all of a sudden I had a new song. So favorites, I mean the black gala rock and roll guitar, which is still in the rock hall till I F for it back, um, yeah I don't they're I mean, all favorites. I mean I, it has nothing to do with how much it costs. I have a. $500 Epiphone Flying V that I play through a little 15-watt Fender amp, and it sounds bigger than life, bro. Right. I love that guitar. That's <laughs> one of my favorites.
0: So, so you know, it's
1: like, which which one do you go to when you go out? When you have somebody calls you hey, you want to do this gig? It's like, which one do you want to pull out? Like, you don't want to travel with one of the real expensive ones. So I have a couple of ones that are like, I got a Telly that's like body parts of different tellies, and got different pickups in it and one of one pickup from my old 75 Les Paul that I lose on that I used on I hate myself for loving you in the video the blue Sparkle so I took one of the pickups the original pickups and I put it into this telecaster with a, like a, a Jeff Beck pickup and another like a Keith Richards neck pickup and when I got to do something and I don't know what you know what I'm gonna do a couple of different uh, vibes like um, styles that's a go-to guitar you know, and the other thing is, like, if I bring it on a plane and something happens, like, I'm going to be very disappointed, but I'm not going to be heartbroken.
0: Right. <laughs> well, you know, Ricky, uh, I want to thank you for uh, talking to me today. And uh, people, go check out the clean, uh, clean. I keep saying the clean getaway. It's it's clean getaway. Now, your album. You're doing this. Uh... Go
1: to yeah. Go to um, here's the deal. So, working on the next record. I need people to pre-order the record. You go to well RickyBird.com. There's a whole bunch of choices. You could get anything from a digital download to like you know a house concert. It it just it's gonna be a great record. If you like the last one, you're gonna love this. If you love the last one, you're gonna really love this one. It's and and if you're in it's good if you're in recovery, you're gonna love it. If you're struggling, you may hear something you need to that needs to be heard. And if you're just a rock and roll fan, it's straight dude. I got like. Steve Holly on it that played with McCartney and plays with Ian Hunter. I got uh, a couple of the Asbury Duke Horns on it. I got Jeff Kazee on keyboards. Um, last the Clean Getaway record I had Bobby Whitlock from Derek and the Dominos played on it. There'll be some surprises. It's just going to be a great rock and roll record. You know, some acoustic songs, some a lot of cool guitar playing. So it's it's just a good record. It, if if you're in if if you're in the recovery world, you're definitely going to pick up something that you could listen to uh, every night. I mean, I got people that tell me they listen to Clean Getaway every night, you know, or a song or two that to help them get through the night. And I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's pretty, uh, I can't ask for more than that as a songwriter and somebody who is in recovery and tries to help other people. So it's just rickybird.com, you know, pick that baby up and uh, I should be finished with it. The faster I raise the money, the faster I could finish with it. Uh, probably a delivery date By the end of the summer
0: And you tweet You're on Twitter Is it Ricky20? Uh, yeah
1: I'm, It's at Birdman What is it? At Birdman20 At Birdman20 Yeah, I'm on Instagram I'm on Facebook I'm on Twitter I'm on LinkedIn Easy to find
0: Alright, well, man I want to thank you For taking the time, people So go check it out Throw some money his way, too And listen to his music Because, you know it's, it is rock and roll, we, we need a little rock and roll these days because there's a lot of crap floating around there, but when you get some good rock and roll, you got to listen to it. So, people, go to rickybird.com. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 720 episodes up there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter, at coopertalk. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.